Alrighty, hello again everyone and welcome to it. It is the Derek Hunter Podcast for the 15th day of September 2022. Happy Thursday, almost Friday. Let's just call it, can we just pretend it's Friday for the love of God? I'm Derek Hunter, I am your host, appreciate you listening, downloading, sharing, telling a friend, so far so good, knock on wood. Apple hasn't screwed up, I still haven't figured out who's got the power over there uh, to control the distribution of the show, but... As long as they don't mess with it, I'm good with it. Uh, don't forget to go and enter the contest. You can win Billy Idol's autographed memoir or Brad Thor's Athena Project, first edition. I think it's Brad Thor, isn't it Brad Thor? Check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast and derekhunter.locals.com. Let us get on with the program. It, it, it's, it's a beautiful day here. And it's going to be a beautiful fall. It's always a beautiful fall, just like it's always a beautiful spring. And it's the kind of year or kind of time of the weather uh, year that you sit there and you go, God, this is, I wish it could be like this all the time. The summer hots, the summer humids, I got no use for it. You can, you can stuff them in the sack and dump them in the bay. But um, it's, if it weren't for the raking of the leaves, I'd say fall is my favorite time of year. But I have no use for the raking of the leaves. It's just too many damn leaves. Couldn't you just, you know, disappear, deteriorate more quickly? Uh, anyway, yeah, thank God for the mulching feature on a mower. But still, you got to do, you got to mow a lot when they really start to fall or else you just have piles of dead leaves everywhere. Anyway, welcome to the program. There is a lot going on, lots of things to talk about, a bunch of stuff happening today and in general and uh, we're going to cover it i uh at, in the show today we're going to play the uh interview i did with ken star i'm going to break it up into two bits uh, and why because ken star passed away yesterday at the age of 76 sadly tragically it was in the hospital. He had to have some sort of surgery, some kind of procedure, and complications from that. He passed away. It's sad news. He was an incredibly nice guy and super smart. And he came on the sh on my podcast back in 2018 when his book came out. His book was, uh, what the hell was it called? Contempt. I thought it was In Contempt, but no, Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. The Clinton investigation was my, uh, it wasn't my uh, entryway into politics. It was the first true real obsession, national obsession, not my obsession, but national obsession in politics where it's, it just, it drowned out everything. There have been, you know, there'd been breaking news events that, uh, you know, for a day or two were all anybody talked about, but uh, the... Ken Starr investigation, the special counsel investigation into Bill Clinton was when Monica Lewinsky came on the scene. Before that, nobody paid any attention to it. But when Monica Lewinsky came onto the scene, it was it was all anybody talked about. It was it. It sucked all of the oxygen out of the room, completely and totally. And I was right there with it. My God, I would watch hours and hours and hours of television. It always... At least to me, for a little while, it seemed like 
Bill Clinton was going to have to resign. Now, Watergate, not my my time. But the idea of a president resigning was wildly intriguing to me. Plus, Bill Clinton was a scumbag. He committed perjury. He cheated on his wife. And, you know, you know I guess you can have some sympathy there for, for Bill. <laughs> but you shouldn't do it. So you sit there and you, you watch all this stuff and you become sucked in by it. And you know all the players and you know everything. And you'll be able to tell from the interview that I conducted at the Daily Caller back all those years ago that it stuck with me, that it stuck with me. Now, Ken Starr is a, a brilliant legal mind. He had no business coming talking to me and there was no audience for the show at the time. And he did it anyway and he couldn't have been nicer. It was one of those guys where you sit there and you go, this guy... This guy, if you just knew the uh, public Ken Starr, the, the, not that you know we served in Nam together or anything, but if you just saw the, uh, the public Ken Starr, the face he put out there and every interview or statement or whatever or the stories about him, you'd think, wow, this guy's just really uptight. But he wasn't. He was incredibly nice. He was very funny when the cameras and the microphones were off. He couldn't have been nicer. And he indulged me. My favorite Ken Starr story involving me, I only have two Ken Starr stories aside from watching the investigation develop. My favorite is the first week I worked in Washington, D.C. First job out of college, first real time wearing a suit, especially to work. Good Lord, you didn't wear a suit to roofing. And I go up to the fourth floor at the Heritage Foundation, which is where the bookstore was. And that was my job, was mailing mailing papers that were available online to elderly Heritage Foundation donors who could have easily printed them up themselves if they had a computer. But I uh, had to do that. And I come back from lunch. I get off the elevator, and standing right there is Ed Meese talking to Ken Starr, right outside my, my door, my glass door. And I just, I, I, I walked past it while keeping my head straight, which nobody walks their head perfectly straight and still, and my eyes peering to the right as I walked past them. And then I spent probably the next, I don't know, 45 minutes looking out the window, looking out the door down the hall to where I could see them. They were right there. And I called my parents. And I was whispering, even though they, they couldn't hear me, and they couldn't care less what I was saying anyway. I was like, Mom, Dad, yeah. guess what's going on outside my door? And what? I said, Ken Starr is talking to Ed Meese. Now, they knew who both of them were, but my parents were not interested in all that interested in politics anyway. They certainly, and they go, yeah? And I'm like, what, what do you mean, yeah? Like, like, I could tell. It would be like... I don't know, somebody meeting a, a superstar athlete that I just simply don't care about. Like, okay, that's not, they don't care. But I was interested. I was, I don't know what they were talking about. I wish I knew what they were talking about. But I'm sitting there and I'm staring at them creepily. Thank God they didn't look and thank God they, they're probably used to it. But yeah, so later on in the program, I'm going to play uh, two different, uh, cut it into two. Two different of the uh, two clips from the interview that I did with Ken Starr. We got to talk about um, Lindsey Graham. We got to talk about Lindsey Graham. Now, I know that there are a lot of people listening who are very, very much 
pro-life. That's fine. There are people listening who are not pro-life, who are pro-choice. That's fine, too. But we have a situation now with the Dobbs decision, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, where we were told what, and where conservatives were telling people what. That we wanted nothing more than to do what? Return this to the states. Roe v. Wade needed to be overturned because it was bad policy, because it was bad law, and it was. It was poorly decided law. And what needs to happen is Roe v. Wade needs to be overturned. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean, you know, the states are going to outlaw it or whatever. It means it returns it to the states, right? That was the argument. That was what conservatives said all along. In the second, you get Roe v. Wade overturned. Now what happens? You've got Lindsey Graham sitting there introducing a nationwide abortion ban after 15 weeks. Now think what you will of the policy, whatever you want. That's not the argument that was made. It's really not. It was overturn it. It's bad law. Leave it up to the states. If your state wants to do that is the way of federalism. That is the way it should be. But it's not the way Lindsey Graham is doing it. Now, why is Lindsey Graham doing this? I have no idea. Lindsey Graham is not a particularly conservative individual on most anything. He's just not. And he's oftentimes a massive liability, to be perfectly honest with you. But he's out there pushing this thing, making other Republicans answer for it, which, again, is wildly stupid especially in an election year. If Republican candidates want to run on this issue, great. If Republican candidates do not want to run on this issue, great. It's their races to run. They can run them however they so choose. But Lindsey Graham doing this, for reasons that don't make any sense, Lindsey Graham isn't even up. Lindsey Graham doesn't have any kids. Lindsey Graham doesn't have any prospect for having any kids anytime soon. You think he's, you know, there's no menopause for men, but he's up there. To sit there and push this out now, you have to wonder what in the hell is going on. You have to wonder what in the hell is going on because this doesn't make any sense. And it's giving Democrats a weapon. If Republicans want to use it, depending on the state, and I'm all about the Republicans winning. I don't care what Lindsey Graham wants. If Republicans want to use it in their race, if if J.D. Vance thinks this plays in Ohio, then he should be able to use it. If somebody else, if, if uh, Herschel Walker doesn't think it plays well in Georgia, he shouldn't have to answer for it. But because of Lindsey Graham, now every Republican is going to have to answer for it. Every Republican is going to have to answer for it. It's wildly stupid and irresponsible. It is Lindsey Graham inserting himself into every race across the country. After, by the way, Lindsey Graham had spent years talking about how if we overturn Roe v. Wade, it will return it to the states. You can't cheer the concept of federalism and then introduce a piece of legislation to usurp the concept of federalism. You see what I'm saying there? Why Lindsey Graham is doing this, we may never know. It's wildly stupid. 
And now you've got Lindsey Graham again, what I mean when he's not a, a, a conservative. Bloomberg, and I understand everybody hates the tech companies. I don't like them very much either. But Lindsey Graham told, according to Stephen Dennis, who writes for Bloomberg, covers the Senate for Bloomberg, Lindsey Graham told us he wants to team up with Elizabeth Warren on a bill to stand up a new regulatory agency that would oversee and license companies like Twitter. We have a Lindsey Graham problem, ladies and gentlemen, a serious Lindsey Graham problem. Lindsey Graham is always was sort of John McCain Jr. John McCain seemed more interested in sabotaging what was going on with the Republican Party than helping what was going on with the Republican Party. And it seems as though Lindsey Graham wants to do the same thing. You want to team up with Elizabeth Warren to start a new regulatory agency, start a new government agency. That's exactly what we need, because God knows there aren't enough government agencies. And there's no way, even if you wanted to do this kind of stupid licensing of tech companies, there's no existing wasteful agency that could handle the workload. None. What are you proposing to get rid of and replace it with this? If it's not five times the number of employees, I'm not interested. And I guarantee you, doing anything with Elizabeth Warren is not going to shrink the size, power, scope, or cost of government in any way, shape, or form if you get it, uh, if you get her on board. This is ridiculous. Lindsay, there are things. Grover Norquist, my old boss Grover, used to talk about ruining the brand, things that ruined the brand. He has an analogy about finding a mouse in a, in a Coke bottle, like it damages the brand. People don't want mice in their Cokes. It's true. We don't need to do any polling on that. It's pretty obvious that people don't want that. But if you find out that there's a whole bunch of Coke bottles out there with mice in them, people would start going, I'm going to go have some Pepsi. Or I'm going to dig up RC Cola or something like that. I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to get away from Coke for a while, if that's your thing. If you find out that the Republican Party is really what, uh, well, the Republican Party isn't really like this, but if it gives Democrats um, the ammunition to go to conservative Americans who aren't necessarily Republicans and right leaning Americans and say, look, there's no difference between them. There's no difference between the parties. And if they're going to try and put, if Lindsey Graham is going to be able to successfully get any of this stuff, Charlie, you can sit there and go, there really isn't anything. Because a 15-week abortion ban is the nationalization, the nationalizing of the legalization of abortion as well for up to 15 weeks. Then you can argue all day long about how long the ban, should it be 12 weeks? Should it be, you know, 20 weeks? What should it be? You've seeded the concept that the federal government should be involved in it, you idiot. When it comes to regulating and licensing tech companies, social media platforms, the federal government has no business in it unless the federal government inserts itself in it conservatives, Republicans, are not supposed to be the party of doing that. Lindsey Graham's instincts are that of John McCain. 
hey, if it makes me look good, maybe we should consider it. He is, John McCain spent a good chunk of his political career, especially the last half of it, first half, you know, the Keating Five, he had his own issues. But the last half of his uh, political career, after 2000, after he was the media darling for a while, John McCain spent a good chunk of his political career shoving a branch, a tree branch, into the front spokes of the Republican Party, knocking them off their own bike. John John McCain died. There was nobody to do that. Lindsey Graham. I'm surprised he didn't do it right away. He was too busy sucking up to Donald Trump. It seems like Lindsey Graham kind of needs somebody to lead him or something, because when he's left to his own devices, he does stupid things like introduce the federalizing of abortion law, which is exactly what Democrats want. Democrats want to codify Roe into law and allow abortion, blah, 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 nationwide mandate that abortion be legal nationwide. And we said, what? Now this is an issue for the states. Well, Lindsey Graham's little gambit here means that, no, it's not for the states. It's for the federal government, that Democrats are right to a point that abortion should be legal up to 15 weeks. Then, no. But then there are exceptions. Well, why are there exceptions? How much time do you need to figure out whether or not this child is the product of incest? Lindsey Graham, apparently a lot longer than 15 weeks. Good job, Lindsey. Great, great work. Okay, I want to uh, get into the first clip of me with Ken Starr. This is from 2018. His book, Contempt, had just come out September of 2018. Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation, had just come out. Super nice guy, super smart guy. It sounds weird because I'm wearing a, as a camera, as a video interview, I'm wearing a lapel mic, we're both are. But anyway, Ken Starr. And I am honored and thrilled to welcome this week's guest, Ken Starr, Judge Starr, so many different titles, special counsel. He's got a new book, Contempt, the uh, memoir of the Clinton investigation. If you were alive in the 1990s, you've definitely heard of Judge Ken Starr. Uh, Judge, welcome to the program. Thank you, Derek. Good to be here. Before we get into any of of the book, and I want to go into the book because this was my formative years in college, I want to talk to you about what's going on right now. Brett Kavanaugh worked for you during your special counsel days. You see what's happening now, and you see it's it's almost like a greatest hits. It's it's this old playbook. First of all, tell us a little bit about the man, Brett Kavanaugh, that you know. Is he capable of something like these allegations? Well, I don't think so. Uh, I have complete confidence, Derek, in uh, Brett's integrity. I should say Judge Kavanaugh, but I've known him since his first name was Brett and not Judge. And he is such a fine person. Uh, We see people rallying around him now, including 65 women who knew him in high school and said, this is not Brett. It is certainly not the Brett Kavanaugh who I've worked with since 1994. He has, quite apart from his abilities and his accomplishments, he has an absolutely perfect record in terms of treating people with kindness and decency and so forth. So this is so wildly out of character that it just seems to me to be odd in the extreme. I don't to attack anyone, and I'm not going to attack anyone, uh, including the accuser. I'm just not going to attack her. But this is not Brett Kavanaugh. 
I should say this is Monday and we'll air this on Friday, so who knows? They may have had a vote by now, but I just yep. wanted to get that on record because yep. if you trace back, and it ties into the partisanship that came out of, I'd say it started with Judge Bork. It may have started before then. It yes. certainly snowballed significantly during the Clinton administration. Yes, it did. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. So you were in on the very beginning. In the book, you weren't the original special counsel looking into it. Robert Fisk was. How did it come to you? How did, You'd been a judge. You'd been then solicitor general. You'd, you'd been in all these different positions. Right. Who knocks on your door and says, hey, we're <laughs> thinking about getting rid of Robert Fisk and replacing him with you? And why did you take that <laughs> call? <laughs> did you have to ask the second question? The, the, the short answer to the first is three judges. Under the old statute, which has gone away, a three-judge special panel of the D.C. Circuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, did the appointing. So when Whitewater first broke onto the national scene uh, and Bill Clinton, as president, said to Janet Reno, his attorney general, I'm directing you, he may have said it more politely than that, I'm directing you to appoint a special counsel, we would now say. She did, because there was no statute. So the traditional authority of the attorney general, which goes back to really the uh, Judiciary Act of 1789, but uh, it goes back most specifically to the uh, administration of Ulysses S. Grant. For all these years, all these decades, when this kind of issue wrongdoing by the president or wrongdoing just by very high officials in the government, the government, through the attorney general, has gone outside to bring in someone typically from the other political party. Mm -hmm. So Fisk was a, a moderate Republican. You correct. were a conservative Republican. They, Janet Reno, given her own choices, probably would not have had you in her Rolodex. So she might have There's gone no doubt. somebody <laughs> else. But yeah. the tradition... Man, yeah, and she chose money. very well. I mean, Robert Fisk was uh, and is a great lawyer, great professional, total integrity. I admire what he has done, and frankly, I admired what I inherited when then those three judges knocked on my door, as you said, and said, Ken, we're not going to reappoint Bob Fisk. And they had reasons for that, having nothing to do with Bob Fisk, a man of great integrity, and had accomplished a lot. But he had been appointed by Janet Reno. And under the statute, the special oh, counsel Bill Clinton was to signed be, the statute into existence again in 1994, was it? Correct. And that meant, that removed it completely from the that, Justice that Department. Was the, well, that was the, exactly. And that was the interpretation then of these three judges. We need to now go to someone who has not been tainted so to speak, by being appointed by Even Janet Even though Fisk Re was a Republican. Correct. It was their Republican. We need to be fully independent. Right. The appearance of impropriety. Now, when you signed up for this, it was a, it was Whitewater. It was a land right. deal gone bad. There may have been some shady dealings with some money. And, some, and, and some there were. As I recount in the book, there were not just shady dealings, but there were shady dealings involving the Clintons. But it, 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 when you're going in, though, that, that's what you're thinking. You're just, this is a real estate deal. I'll look into it and find out whether or not they cook the books or what have you. You stayed with your law firm part-time, which was allowed under yes. the statute. You didn't think this was going to be all-consuming no. no. at all. How prepared were you for what it became? Not well prepared. As I describe in the book, that very first day on the job, I took the oath of office at the courthouse. I had <laughs> hail a cab. There was no Uber. I hail a cab. <laughs> no cell phones. <laughs> no cell phones, exactly. You know, the old fashioned, hey, cabbie. Uh, 
then headed to what's now Reagan National Airport and fly to Memphis, change planes. In the meantime, and I've described this in the book, I have two conversations. One with Janet Reno, which was a pretty formal, kind of cold conversation, and the other with the counsel to the president, Lloyd Cutler. Mm -hmm. And that was a great, and it's a great insight into our system, that is, he said, Ken, I'm counsel to the presidency. David Kendall, the private lawyer at Williamson Connolly, is the counsel to the president. And that stayed with me, knowing that the counsel to the president should be above the fray, right. right, and not be part of the defense team. But anyway, so I get to Little Rock that same day, uh, and I go in, I'm with Bob Fisk, and I tell the story in the book that toward the end of that day, Bob Fisk says, Ken, I knew Bob, move your family to Little Rock. You're going to be here for a long time. <laughs> He'd been on a job for eight months, but he was already looking into much more than a failed land deal in Arkansas. Right. And here's a key point that I think people, and in fact, I had a radio interview. The guy says, there was nothing there. And I said, no, there was a lot there in Arkansas, 14 criminal convictions, including the sitting governor of the state. But there was a lot of evidence implicating Bill and Hillary. We just couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. How much of it was it be, uh, that roadblock or that inability to prove that it was the Clintons were directly involved and it had to do with Susan McDougall' refusal to testify and willingness to sit in court? Jim McDougall did was willing to, but he passed away. Exactly, Jim McDougall, uh, as <laughs> to use the the president's uh, vernacular, flipped. So he had been convicted uh, and was facing jail time. And so he began cooperating with the investigation just the way uh, uh, Paul Manafort is presumably doing at this, at this time. And so it was a great breakthrough because Jim had been the head of the bank uh, that failed with Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan. But Susan was a business person. She was a marketing person, but she was also a business person. And so she had a lot of information. So you're exactly right. After he uh, completes his work with us, uh, and he, uh, and, and this is even in his book posted posthumously, Bill Clinton committed perjury at his trial, at the, at the Jim McDougal, Jim Guy Tucker, Susan McDougal trial. All this I now recount in the book, but this is kind of shielded, not shielded, but, but it just wasn't in the public eye. It never registered. Newspapers three cable or three broadcast networks and one cable network if if they ignored it it didn't go anywhere the yes, world didn't know exactly. about it there was no internet to get things out we're in a much different place you know there's some bad things obviously about it we see that every day but the good news is there are more platforms for truth seeking you know it was matt drudge that was about it in yeah. those days and you know who's matt drudge what what, what is this but people developing stories, developing their own resources and so forth. And ultimately so, forcing the rest of the media to cover it. Yeah. Right? That, I mean, that was the Lewinsky phase. I mean, Matt, I, Matt Drudge, I've never met Matt Drudge, but I don't think he was in business at the time. If he was, he did not have a national reputation. I do want to say this since we're on the media and not infrequently, uh, my friends on the right say the media is horrible, the media is horrible. Much of the media was not. I divided the media into two camps, truth seekers and then everybody else. <laughs> the everybody else One party was more crowded than the other th party. There's no question. <laughs> but the truth seekers had some very 
great people from the mainstream media, including a real unsung hero, Sue Schmidt of the Washington Post, who the Clinton White House came out viciously. And to their credit, the Washington Post of Catherine Graham stood by her through thick and through thin. Lisa Myers, these are all names in the past mm -hmm. of NBC News. Or Stuart Taylor. Was a, Stuart a Taylor was a truth. He was a truth seeker. Uh, and Lisa broke the story of Juanita Broderick, who claimed with some credibility that she had been raped by Attorney General Bill Clinton. So uh, Jeff Gerth of the New York Times originally broke the, the Whitewater story during the campaign, but the issue did not develop legs during the 92 campaign. It came back up after the death of Vincent Foster Jr. I want to get to yeah. Vince Foster's yeah. suicide Sorry. in a second, but on the, on the Whitewater front, yeah. how much of it do you think the, the lack of public interest in that was because it was it was regulatory, it was, it was paperwork, it was minutia, it wasn't yeah. as easily understandable as some of the other things? Because like, that seemed like there were major laws broken, they knew what they were doing, and they profited from it. It's a pretty easy case to make, except you have to go so far into the weeds to make it that the average person getting three minutes on their nightly news, their eyes glaze over and they move on. And you're exactly right. And part of the challenge that we had in terms of public understanding was all this was laid out in a three-month trial. Mm -hmm. So three months, what's the attention span? Of we only pay attention to OJ so for that long. That's it. <laughs> but I just found it amazing because that was one of the Clintons, and we saw that later with the Lewinsky thing, but the Clintons were very good at delay, 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 and then, oh, it's old news at that yes. point. And you get people... You have the interest at the beginning. Right. They weighed out the interest. They managed to drag their feet past the interests of the people. Then they admit it and say it's old news. Yep. You were the, on the receiving end of that many times. It was, a, it was a diabolical but brilliant strategy straight out of the pages of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. And one of the things that I want to remind the American people of is that Hillary Clinton, as a student at Wellesley, embraced Rules for Radicals. Now, not rules for thoughtful liberals, right. rules for radicals, and it is destroy, destroy. And we see those techniques throughout the Clinton White House, including by Bill himself, who I think was a friendly enough guy that I don't think he was being animated by rules for radicals, but she right. was. I, I think Bill kind of, he could work across the aisle, he could get along, go along. He had certain lines politically, but no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, Hillary, I, I, Hillary, not so much. Oh, my goodness. No, the, the night and day, I mean, you saw this. And I realized she was a little bit of a fish out of water in Arkansas. But we're really talking about personality. Mm -hmm. Someone from Chicago, Illinois, can do just fine in Little Rock. But she was the fish out of water. And, you know, this was Bill. But we see Bill, people like Bill Clinton to this day. Yes. If, if he were in here, you would, you would like him. And, and he'd he probably famous. act like he liked us. Too. Oh, there's no question. In fact. Have you ever met him? Oh, yeah, because of all the investigation, but no. But not, no, not, not, not casually, not yeah. accidentally. No. Like not, you did Monica sure. that we'll get to yeah. in a second, but. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do describe one incident when at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, when he was a newly elected governor, I was in the same elevator with him and, and he was holding forth in the elevator. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't talk to him or whatever because it was a crowded elevator. Some kind of con convention was going on. But go ahead. The uh, investigation evolves. Vince Foster commits suicide. Now, yes. Vince Foster seems like a guy who had everything going for him. Absolutely. And who knows why anybody does that? But in the midst of 
uh, Vince Foster suicide, all these conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. The documents being removed. Was right. Vince Foster murdered? Then you end up with Hillary Clinton having the Rose Law Firm billing records that had been under subpoena for some time in the private residence of the White House. Probably one of the most secure areas Correct. on the face of the earth. You said you almost charged her with perjury yes. in part because of that. As well as obstruction. Was it simply because, as you recounted when you were talking about the near perjury and obstruction charges, she said, I, I don't remember more than 100 times in the right. course of in a couple of hours, uh, unless she'd recently suffered a closed head injury. I don't know <laughs> how that's possible. But was, did you ever get the sense, do you think you could have made that case? Do you think you, if you, is, is there a way to we, make that case, especially now looking back? Uh, no, given the evidence that we had, and more importantly, the evidence that we didn't have. So that was a circumstantial case, circumstantial case. Was there ever a case. plausible explanation to explain why those papers ended up in the White House residency? There was a plausible explanation, but not an innocent explanation. The explanation was, and this is my theory, I lay this out in the book, I think this is one of the reasons. It's an opinion, but it's an opinion based upon thinking really hard about, here are the facts, why did Vince Foster take his own life? The conspiracy theorists, with all due respect, are just wrong. Mm -hmm. So any person who reads our report, primarily authored by Brett Kavanaugh, will come to the view that unless they think, well, he's just making this up. No, no, no. Grounded in fact. So he took his own life, but why? And my theory is Vince Foster either directly or ordered the removal of the Rawls Law Firm billing records because they implicated Hillary in providing legal services for the for Madison Guarantee Savings right. and Loan, and his on this we do know his own handwriting was on those billing records with some notations and so forth. Those are the records. Then, and he becomes deputy White House counsel with an office in the West Wing. Those are the records. Then, that my theory is they were removed from his office improperly and taken to the residence where they were found in the book room. Originally, Hillary said she didn't do anything uh, or, or very little work when she was working for the Rose Law Firm on Madison Guarantee. Those records that were found show that she did quite a bit. Yes, but the Clintons were so effective that the news coming out of the Clinton count, thank goodness they've been found. They corroborate exactly <laughs> what uh, Hillary, what Hillary, and we don't want that, what, what Hillary has been saying, which was just wrong. Thank goodness you found what we've been hiding from you. Finally. Yeah. Ah, yes. The late, great Ken Starr. We'll play more of that later on in the program. Uh, moving on for the moment from Ken Starr. Just want to break up the Ken Starr things. I want to play you, um, I don't like this game, but it is instructive and important to play the what if a Republican said it. It's really easy to say what if Trump did it. And anything that, that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth and you go, well, what if what if what if Trump had done that? It's it's an easy game. It's a cheap game. But every once in a while, it really illustrates the point, because you, you see these leftists pouncing on. I mean, there are people whose job it is to follow around campaigns. I remember in 2006, it was the first time I'd ever seen a, uh, I can't remember what the hell they're, tracker, a campaign tracker. I'd never seen a campaign tracker before. I don't know that I'd ever even heard of a campaign tracker before. But in 2006, when I was out in Montana working for uh, Senator Burns' re-election, this guy showed up at every event. 
And he'd set up a little camera on a little tripod, and he would film everything Conrad said. And when Conrad Burns was meeting with people afterwards, because Montana, Montana's a gigantic state with a small town feel, no matter where you go. No matter where you go. And, and Senator Burns had been a senator for 18 years. If you hadn't met Conrad Burns by 2006, it's because you just literally got off the plane or you've actively decided you didn't want to meet him. You you decided to live the life of a hermit, which, you know, in Montana, a lot of people do, and you can do it quite, quite effectively because there's a lot of space to be left alone. So he knew everybody to one degree or another, whether they liked him or not was a, a different story. But after he'd give a speech or in an event, people would come up to him and he'd sit there and talk to him and say, oh, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you this way. And he had an amazing memory. These, one thing most of these politicians have is when they uh, when their staff or something is involved in uh, helping you resolve a problem, they know about it and they remember it. It doesn't matter how long ago it was. The good ones do anyway. So Conrad would have conversations with these people, and this guy's like sort of lurking around with the camera, trying to film all of it. And you just go and you know sometimes just depending on what it was, I'd be since I was I'm huge, six foot five. I'd get in between him. I'd try and block the camera sometimes, and then other times I'd go, "Why don't you set up over there? There's a camera because you can't keep them out. You just you mess with them. You feel like a jerk." They're hoping to catch something that they can use. I don't think in 2006 they found anything that they could use. Now, in uh, fairness to reality, Senator Burns, I loved the man. He was a hilarious guy. But he could on occasion say things where that certainly would not fly today. In 2006, different things would fly, but they tried to make sure that those things didn't fly then. They tried to feign outrage. There was the like the maybe the the sapling stage, the tadpole stage of cancel culture. But in private, oh boy, if they'd ever heard of our conversations, the dirty jokes and everything. There were jokes. You're having fun. You're having a conversation with a normal human being who just happens to be a United States senator. They would have thrown a fit over it. Our, as it is, our tracker, I don't think, really got anything. That was 2006, by the way, was the year that the tracker in Virginia caught uh, George Allen saying macaca or whatever. Something nobody's ever heard of. Somebody had to dig through and find a way to bastardize this and say, well, this is racist because it, I think it was a monkey or something, and the person who taped it was uh, an Indian, American. or something. I, I can't even remember what it was. I just remember it was so wildly stupid that... Uh, it, it it seemed unbelievable at first. But I believe the Washington Post ran something like 100 stories, more than 100 stories, on Makaka and how it was offensive. They created this outrage. They they committed character assassination in that race. And ever since then, every word a politician says has been recorded, scrutinized, tracked, traced. There's people around a politician when they're just going through and shaking hands. And you sit there and you think, well, this is probably staff following the governor or following the uh, candidate through the state fair shaking hands. No, no. That's usually a rival campaign filming this stuff in the hopes that they catch a weird angle of somebody eating a hot dog or somebody trips or what was it, uh, John Kerry in 2004, goes to uh, 
I don't remember if it was Geno's or Pat's. It, I don't. I'm going to commit heresy in Pennsylvania. I don't know that. I mean, I know the difference. I've eaten both. I like them both. I don't taste the difference between either one of them. I don't. It's whichever one throws more meat in the bun. The bread is what's key. But uh, John Kerry is sitting there, and I believe he asked for ketchup or mayonnaise on his cheesesteak. And that was as if that had just been caught by the NBC nightly news crew. They wouldn't have made a big. They wouldn't have probably released it. It probably never would have seen the light of day. But it was caught by other people with cameras as well, and then it saw the light of day. See, that's the kind of stuff that would go on the cutting room floor back in the days of. You heard me and Ken Starr talking about the days of media, where they said if they didn't cover it, it might as well not have existed because there was no other avenue for it to get out. Two thousand six. Start of 2004, really, maybe even a little bit earlier, whenever YouTube really started, there were avenues. The Drudge Report, back when it was a, a worthwhile website, would go there. It'd go there, and, and that would give uh, an outlet to somebody who had this footage that the networks weren't interested in. So if the networks weren't interested in it, nobody, it didn't matter, didn't exist. So everything these people say is up for scrutiny. Now, I wouldn't particularly engage in this, and in a perfect world, this would go away because I understand how people can have things taken out of context. People can mean things in one way, and they're certainly not talking about X, Y, or Z. And it's just ridiculous to try to hold these people to this perfect standard that's impossible to obtain. But these are the rules. These are the rules that Democrats created. These are the rules that Democrats use their entire establishment to enforce. So you're damn right I'm going to hold them accountable to it. To hell with them. So that brings us to the Senate race in Ohio. A guy named Tim Ryan is running. He's a member of the House of Representatives. He is running as the Democratic nominee. He's running against J.D. Hayworth out there in, uh, in Ohio. Now, like I said, I don't know what J.D. Hayworth is running his campaign on. I don't live in Ohio, so I haven't seen the barrage of television commercials and radio ads about J.D. Hayworth or from J.D. Hayworth or about him, attack ads or anything. I don't know what the terms are. But Lindsey Graham, as I mentioned, has now presumably created a scenario where J.D. Hayworth is going to have to answer about abortion a lot. Now, I don't know if that's going to play in Ohio, how that'll play. I'm not running. I've never lived in Ohio, thank God. But that's just a bias growing up in Michigan. You, you're, you're taught to hate Ohio, and they deserve it. But um, if abortion isn't going to play well, then, then J.D. Hayworth probably wouldn't have spent a lot of time on the issue. He'd paid lip service. He would have talked about it, made his position clear, and that'd be about it. Whereas if you have a situation where uh, in Georgia, where Herschel Walker, around abortion probably play a little bit better down in the Bible Belt than in Ohio. But Lindsey Graham makes him have to answer for it now, no matter what. So you have to play this game of politics. So in a radio interview, Tim Ryan says that they got to kill MAGA. Kill MAGA. Now, I know what he meant. You'll probably know what he meant 
by uh, this. It's making an analogy. He's making a comparison. But if a Republican said it, if J.D. Vance had said, hey, uh, we need to really kill the squad and their hold on the DNC, AOC would run to a camera and immediately start nailing herself to a cross and demand that J.D. Vance not only apologize but resign, stop running, and seed the race. Why should it be different when a Democrat does it? The Democrats aren't right on everything, and I'm willing to sit down and have conversations about how we can move out of this age of stupidity and into an age of reconciliation and reform. How do we fix all of these broken systems? Some of those answers will come from Republicans, it's not not the extremists that we're dealing with every single day. We've got to kill and confront that movement. Um, but the, you know, working with normal mainstream Republicans, I think that's going to be really, really important. We've got to kill and confront that movement. Kill and confront that movement. I know I'd said J.D. Uh, Hayworth. There's only so many J.D.s. J.D. Vance. But there's Tim Ryan. We've got to kill and confront that movement. Now, I know what he means. But uh, the left knew, and the New York Times knew exactly what Sarah Palin meant when on her website, on an obscure page, on a website that nobody had ever gone to, let alone Jared Lee Loeffner, the guy who tried to kill... Gabby Giffords. They knew what he, that he'd never been to that website, and they knew that having Giffords district in the crosshairs, that's what you did. Hey, we're targeting this district, and we're targeting this district, and we're targeting this district. That that was common. Common as, as exhaling. But they had to find a way to try and blame Republicans. And so what did they do? They took a website that they had to search to find and a website that the killer never went to. Killer, who, by the way, was a, an ardent hater of George W. Bush. So, you know, it's not probably sitting around waiting for his subliminal marching orders from Sarah Palin if you absolutely despise George W. Bush. His whole social media history was about how he hated George W. Bush. I don't think that guy's going to take his marching orders from Sarah Palin. But the media went the violent rhetoric of people like Sarah Palin, putting the crosshairs. What do you expect? Unhinged people will hear that. Unhinged people will hear that and they could act on it. And clearly they did. Clearly they did. This is wrong. This is horrible. This is awful. And it's Sarah Palin's fault. That's what they said. So while in a normal world, Tim Ryan would get a pass from this, in this world, he doesn't. Right there, you just heard violent rhetoric from the Democrat running for Senate in Ohio. How many people will hear that and be inspired to commit violence? Maybe they won't try and kill a Republican candidate for Senate against him. But who knows? They might. It didn't take a whole lot to set off, uh, what's his face, the uh, Hodgkinson, James Hodgkinson, who tried to kill those Republicans on that baseball field. All it took was Rachel Maddow and the gang saying, Republican health care plans are going to kill 10,000 Americans every year. Why? Well, because we said they will. Uh, what are you basing it on? We're basing it on our need to have something to campaign on. Oh, all right. 
So Democrats shouldn't get a pass. We should have never given a pass to Bernie Sanders and the gang for 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 uh, James Hodgkinson. It's a double standards. And you sit there and you go, well, it's absurd. We want to raise the standards. Who doesn't want to raise the standards? But how long do you have to try to raise the standards before you realize that they're never going to? You're out there boxing by the Marquis of Queensbury rules while the other guy is kicking you in the groin repeatedly and the referee is going, come on, fight, let's go. What are you waiting for? You make your case. Hey, don't you see what he's doing? Yeah, just come on, fight, let's go. How long are you going to take it? How long till you kick back? It's about time Republicans start kicking back, at least a little. As promised, I want to return to the Ken Starr interview, part two of it, uh, about his book, In Contempt. The late, great Ken Starr passed away yesterday, tragically, unexpectedly, as complications due to surgery at the age of 76. So without any further ado, here's more of Ken Starr. Um, And then one day, I don't know, how does Linda Tripp come into, how does the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, did Linda Tripp contact you? Exactly. So that story briefly told, I tell it in greater detail and contempt. Uh, So Linda Tripp was the executive assistant to Vince Foster. She was the last person in the White House complex that we know of to see him alive. So she was a witness who we had worked with in trying to get to the bottom of the death of Vincent Foster Jr. So then the years go by and the phone rings and on a Sunday night, I go into detail on this, she talks to my deputy, Jack Bennett, Jackie Bennett, a terrific prosecutor, won the most heralded and high achievement award in the Department of Justice. So this career prosecutor from the public integrity section feels the call and that's when we learned about the president's attempt, or his soon attempt, and his success at committing perjury and encouraging others to commit perjury. That, uh, you had to go back to the judges to get permission to go into this, did you not? The attorney general did. Attorney. See, here's the, yeah, that, that's another thing that gets lost in the Monica Lewinsky fog. Uh, so the information comes to us. We have the verification by virtue of our recording the conversation that's a real time between Monica's. We're not just listening to tapes. Mm. We've confirmed this at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. And so uh, we take that information to the Attorney General, and she determines, she sent over a very senior Justice Department uh, prosecutor, terrific guy, I knew him, uh, very strong reputation, integrity, career civil servant, and he reviews the evidence. He goes back to the Justice Department. She very promptly decides our mandate in the independent counsel's office has to be expanded to include an investigation to whether Monica Lewinsky and others have committed perjury or other offenses in connection with the Paula Corbin Jones sexual harassment lawsuit. Now, that's a giant bear trap and a sidewalk on a sunny day. <laughs> did you know you were going to step in that, in the storm that would follow it, or did you, you I, I don't... You don't know, Derek, but you sense, you know, I'm trying to get away to Pepperdine University to become the dean of the law right. school, so I need this like the proverbial hole in the head. But our focus was, here it is, we can't ignore it, here is the President of the United States involved in criminal conduct. We were already of the view that it had been in the criminal conduct in Arkansas, and we couldn't prove it uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. I want everyone to understand. 
uh, and we tried to be prosecutors of integrity, you don't bring charges in the federal system unless you have concluded that you can prove the offense by admissible evidence of where your witnesses, where your documents, beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a great protection to the American right. people. But uh, I knew you had to know that you were going to catch hell. That you'd already dealt with Clinton pushback on Whitewater and, and Vince Foster and, and the other investigations. But this was going to a new level. Yes. Were you? Is there any way that you... You knew something was coming, but you, yeah. did you know it what it was? Because you no. had all the dogs of hell <laughs> from the administration. He he used his cabinet officials to go out and lie. James Carville unleashed, accusing you of being a pervert and just a sex <laughs> obsessed. I, mean, I don't know how you could prepare for that. What was that like? No. And how did your family deal with that? It, ironically, we were somewhat prepared. I, I analogize it. I love baseball to being in the minor leagues. That is, we were attacked and vilified in Arkansas, I should say. I was attacked most directly. Mm. The, the governor of the state was, had been indicted. So what's the governor and his uh, apparatus? I mean, he had a PR firm and all that, and lawyers going out on the courthouse steps. So the, uh, the theme we were hearing in Little Rock, Arkansas, it's a Republican politicized investigation all they're trying to do is to bring down the Clintons. Mm. So we'd already heard that. Uh, so I guess we had developed one layer of skin to get a little bit more thick skin. But no, I had not anticipated, uh, and I don't think I could reasonably have anticipated, the furor uh, and the fury with which uh, the president uh, saw fit to wage war. A lot of positions changed then. When Monica was first added, her attorney was critical of President Clinton at the time. And you thought, oh, maybe she's going to, to cooperate. What happened there? Why didn't she cooperate as much as she could have? My theory, and only Monica can answer this, and I don't think she, she has. She blames me. Right. I made her life miserable, and I understand that perspective. I disagree with it, but that's her perspective. I think she was bound and determined to protect the president. You think it was still she was in love with him still at There's that no time? No question. Well, I can't say she was in love, but she did not want to bring with us a mixture of admiration, affection, and political affinity. She and she said this. I described this. This has not previously been described. I describe it in the book. Her hallway conversation with her mother at the Ritz Carlton. I'm not, she used very foul language to make it very clear to her mom that she was not going to bring this president down. So I think she viewed the situation in apocalyptic terms and she wanted to help save the president. Are you surprised how well the Clintons landed on their feet after all the, you know more about their dirty dealings than probably anybody except for people they were involved with. Now, right after 2000, she gets elected to the Senate. She's a front runner for the presidential nomination in 2008. Donald Trump, or Donald Trump, Bill Clinton becomes sort of an elder statesman. All is sort of forget, right. forgotten and swept yeah. under the rug. Are you surprised how quickly that happened? No, I think uh, the American people, first of all, are very forgiving. In fact, one of the but things. Only when asked for it. We weren't asked. No, it's, a, it's a good point, but part of it, I think, really goes to Bill Clinton's personal qualities of being likable. It's very hard, I think, to overestimate the importance in politics, public life, of being likable. 
It's part of my free advice. Someday to pre- I'll figure that out, but it's yeah. never, never, never yeah. been an issue for me. You're doing great, Derek. But <laughs> I'm it's, holding it's, it in. It's, it's one of the things that I know we live in a very polarized time that, and he hasn't asked me, but I tell him anyway, President Trump, be a little bit more likable. Quit picking so many dadgum fights. You don't need to do this. And I think he gets that advice probably every day and he shuts it aside. So maybe he's right. But, but that's, that's built. If, if Bill, this was a great story about Bill Clinton, that if he goes into a crowded room and everybody's his friend and supporter, but he sees three non-friends over in a corner, he heads to them. He has great confidence in his ability to win people over, which I think is what doomed him in when it came to the rule of law and telling the truth. I think he had so much confidence in his communication skills, and they are great, they are legendary, yes. that he could, in fact, get away with perjury and obstruction of justice. Let me ask you about the attacks on you. Did any of them sting? You, you couldn't really come out and and refute them, rebut them, answer them. You couldn't get into a, an argument with the President of the United States or any of his flying monkey army or anything like that. But being hammered and forced to be silent had to be a massive weight. I was doing everything I could through the pillars of faith, family, and friends to stay strong because I had the servant leadership responsibility for my colleagues to try to be an example of them to just to gut it out. But there's a poignant moment that I capture in the book uh, about uh, our very dear friend, our pastor at our church in Northern Virginia at the time, gives a a, a sermon about the loss of reputation. It wasn't directed at me, but as he was speaking, I was thinking, you know, Vince Foster, Vince Foster gave this very poignant speech just two months before he took his life, a commencement speech at his alma mater in Fayetteville, saying, don't lose your reputation. It's the most precious thing. And then he took his life. So I'm thinking Vince Foster and, yeah, loss of reputation. And then I'm saying goodbye to Lon, our pastor, at the end. He said, Ken, I was talking about you. I thought, oh, great, <laughs> loss of reputation. So that was a, a downer moment, but I tried to... Uh, and it's just the way I am. I try to walk on the sunny side of the street and to just stay, hey, stay focused, try to, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't come home. Geraldo is now a different Geraldo, but mm-hmm. then Geraldo was one of the echo chambers. Anything the Clinton folks wanted, Geraldo would, and he was really pretty nasty. And people would say, did you see what Geraldo did? And my answer was, no, and I don't want, <laughs> But I knew things had gotten bad when someone came in, I recount this uh, in uh, contempt. Hey, Ken, I had an open-door policy. Maybe I shouldn't have, especially in this particular episode. Ken, guess what? The polls are out. Your numbers are below those of Saddam Hussein. (laughs) So I knew the the Clinton spin cycle and machine was really powerful and very effective. If you had it to do over again, would you do it? Yeah. Putting aside the pursuit of justice. Yeah. Knowing everything you went through. Yes, I, w- I would do it because I was asked to do it, and I've never turned down an assignment. And by the way, I should say, I was very privileged and blessed to have some assignments I didn't deserve. So it was time that I took <laughs> this a is bullet. A, this a is a hell of a penance. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I've done my penance. Uh, I hope higher authority uh, hears that. But I would be a lot smarter now, needless to say. Having been through all this... I would have hired a press person much earlier. 
Mm. I resisted doing that. That was not a, was a it, wise move. You were in a, a prosecutor. You weren't in the business of PR. You were going where the facts made you, and you didn't. Thank is you. that was that a sign of you just didn't really realize what you were up against? That you didn't that you were resistant was, to a press. It was a conception of the job, and the desire to do the job as quickly, as efficiently, and frankly, as inexpensively as possible. So I resisted add-ons and so forth. I drove around a GSA car. I had a very simple apartment in Little Rock that I lived in. So at the end of the day, and the, you didn't really answer, you, Geraldo said some things that stuck. But is there anything, did you lose friends over this? Did you lose? No, there were some nasty episodes, but not in Little Rock, interestingly enough. I never had a nasty episode uh, in uh, Little Rock. No, I would say, if anything, friends rallied around, uh, the people at our children's school. And I talk about a lot about the personal level, but frankly, the toughest thing was to have my daughter at Stanford University under round-the-clock security because she was under death threat, because Chelsea was there. <laughs> oh, so it was kind of the dark side. Did they ever run into each other? They never did. Actually, no. She was a sophomore. She had a very different major. It's a big university. And I don't think the Secret Service and right. Carolyn were the U.S. Marshals. I don't think they were trying to keep them separated. Right. But Carolyn was in a sorority. She was very involved in a cappella group. She was very involved in a church group in, in East Palo Alto and so forth. They just weren't running in the same crowd. But Carolyn was not in Young Republicans <laughs> or what have you. Right. I mean, she, she had, after that first year, a great college life at Stanford. Uh, and I think Chelsea had a great experience at, Chil at, they, at Stanford. She seems to be happy. You might be yeah. the person, I was just thinking about this, you might be the person I've seen take out their trash more than <laughs> anybody who doesn't live adjacent to me. Every day was it that you went out to get into your car where their camera crews there? Yes. It, yes. They, wasn't, they could get the gist of it in like two days. There he is in two different color suits. No. We've got this. We'll just alternate them. But they were there every day. Well, I talked to the media folks about this. I mean, the people who were there were really good folks, right? They were not done. Only one time did I have usually, camera people are really the salt of the earth. They, they the tech real, people, yeah, they were just good folks doing doing their job. I only had one time in that whole episode where a reporter was there just yelling almost epithets, right? <laughs> so. Uh, uh, she was part of the resistance, I guess. Probably is very active in the resistance now. But, uh, no, I, I had a treaty of peace with uh, the media, which is, in those days, uh, the marshals let me go to Starbucks. It was the, I'm, I'm a Starbucks, sorry, but I'm a big Starbucks. I love pizza. I love all kinds of Because it's got your name. Yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> so, in any event, uh, I would have a treaty in place that at about 6.15, I would hop into my own car, you know, in sweats or whatever, mm -hmm. go grab Starbucks for Alice and me, uh, and you know they wouldn't film it. Right? That was that was the. Agreement. I want to see Ken Star in his sweats. Hopping sure, into I'm in sweats all the time. I was in sweats. Never early, seen that. I was earlier seen today. Too. But they 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 were honorable. They didn't. Film. But then I would say departure at seven ten, seven fifteen. Uh, and I would stick with that just so they could know. I mean, you need to, to have predictability so you could get your camera. And I would say, well, I'm not really going to say anything other than the investigation is ongoing. Have a nice day and so forth. I said, we need fresh material every day. Every day. Yeah, every day. So every day. I remember just every single day. And it was a banner day, the one day, garbage week. Yeah. <laughs> garbage day because you, you take I, out your garbage. Derek, I did learn I had to stop doing that. We would take the garbage out. After the media had gone, 
They were tempted. I don't know. I, I would have worn something crazy or some weird hat or something just to, to break it up. You've got a better sense of humor <laughs> than I do. I, 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 I don't I'm, have. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I don't have the responsibilities that you had, <laughs> so I, I have the luxury of that. You did run into Monica Lewinsky around the holidays in New York. Right. And you spoke to her briefly. She wrote about it in New York Magazine or Vanity right. or whatever. She still, to this day, blames you, thinks yeah. you were the problem, not the people involved in it, the person right. who helped discover it. And I assume she hates Linda Tripp as well. But what was going through your mind when you see Monica Lewinsky in a restaurant? I felt the need to go say hello. Do you feel guilt or anything towards what happened to her? No, I feel badly <clears throat> right. for this her. Distinct difference. Just as a human two. being, but no. In fact, uh, I'm now asked, as I'm talking about the book, uh, don't you think you need to apologize? And sometimes it's put in those kind of mm. attack terms. And, and I said, no, I don't. I feel badly for what happened. But do you regret? Of course, I regret the pain that was caused the country. Uh, but it really boils down to individuals living up to their responsibility to be truthful citizens and not to lie under oath, which Monica did, and then she was encouraging Linda Tripp to lie under oath. But what uh, Monica said, and I, I, I recount this toward the end of the book, uh, was uh, I made some bad choices, and I'm sort of regretting those bad choices, and I regret the bad cho the choices you made as well. And I didn't respond. I just listened to to her, and I said, I wish you well. To be honest, what was on my mind was, we're going to be late for church because it's Christmas <laughs> Eve. So I was trying to get children and grandchildren out of the restaurant. Last thing, why would you wait 20 years? Uh, I've been busy, uh, fully <laughs> occupied. No yeah, no, no so you actually wrote it, no ghostwriter. No, no, yeah, right, no, 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 no ghostwriter. Uh, but it's been 20. Yeah. It been twenty, but Did that, you that's need the part perspective? of it. It was helpful to have the perspective because essentially the pain, the anger, and so forth was totally gone. But also, Hillary had lost the election, so it was now Is the this end book of the publish if she wins in twenty sixteen. I think that would have been a harder question for me. Do I really want to? I want our president to succeed. Mm -hmm. I may not have voted for our president, but I would not like the idea of reigning on the parade. But I had the time, flexibility, freedom to do it now. And so I knew that I would not be raining on the president's parade had she had she won. And what do you want people to know to take away? What the last nugget as they go to bed, as they close this for the last time, as they sink to sleep, what do you want <laughs> going through their head? Well, I want them to sleep well, but I want it to go to that our system works, the rule of law is real, we're going to hold everyone accountable. This is not Russia, this is not a third world country, and now very relevantly, impeachment is hell. Don't go there. Amen. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the uh, the Ken Starr interview rehash. I really, you know, he was one of he's probably my favorite interview, just because I had watched so many hours of the uh, of, of of the the coverage of the Clinton scandals. And I felt like Ken Starr walked in. He felt like you knew him. He was wearing a fedora, which, you know, added to the mystique of fedora and an overcoat. And he came in and was like, cool, that's Ken Starr. So, yes, rest in peace, Judge Starr. Now I want to I want to play you something. <clears throat> I want to play you this woman from TikTok. 
These libs of TikTok things are great because it's not just all teachers, although it wouldn't surprise me if this woman were also a teacher or a college professor. But you have um, <clears throat> this woman. She is of Indian descent. I don't know if she lives. In, I don't think she lives in India. I think she probably lives here in the United States. But she exemplifies the left and what leftists are these days. Blame everybody else for anything you've got and anything you can think of. It has to be somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault. Now, what am I talking about? This woman is fat. She's not, you know, the she's not like grotesquely obese growing into the couch or anything, but she's overweight. Who does she blame? She does not blame herself no way no how that's just not how the game works what does she do being a liberal in good standing she blames wait for it da, da, da. evil whitey yes white privilege is why this woman is obese now she has <laughs> forgive the expression she has burned a lot of calories thinking about this she has burned a lot of calories thinking about this. She has done some homework. Not good homework. It was counterproductive homework. But she has done her homework on trying to find some way to blame something other than herself for her being overweight. Listen to her. She makes a... Uh, if you didn't know anything about history or you didn't understand the concept of personal responsibility and nobody's shoveling food down anybody's throat, you might lend some credence to a couple of the points that she does. And then she goes off on these really weird tangents about how her DNA somehow has been reprogrammed to store fat in preparation for a possible famine. I swear to God, listen to it for yourself. I'm going to prove to you why white people are the reason I'm fat today. If white people didn't go looking for spices, then various sea routes to Indian subcontinent and Africa and other places of the world would not get discovered. And if they didn't get discovered, then East India Company would never come to Indian subcontinent. And if they didn't come, then the fertility of the land would not get destroyed because they forced us to cultivate tobacco and dyes and opioid, things like that, and that destroyed the fertility of my country. And then if that didn't happen, and if they didn't exploit and extract resources until my ancestors were left with nothing to eat, we wouldn't move to this grain-heavy, very little nutritious diet that we have today. Also, if white people didn't come to the Indian subcontinent, then my ancestors would not go through 50 small, medium, large famines in a period of 200 years. That's a lot. And in 1943, nearly 3 million people would not have died due to starvation and malnutrition. And if that didn't happen, then this entire place um, and the people of this place would not adapt to survive on lower calories. 
we also wouldn't biologically be programmed to hold on to more fat because my genes they always think okay you're gonna die at some point there's gonna be a famine you will not have food and you're gonna die i would also not be prone to diabetes heart high blood pressure um heart diseases and all that other things so yeah white people is the reason why i can't lose weight white not the not the pile of twinkies behind you but white people what is there nothing we can't do boy if you know th you don't want to talk about flat earthers these people all seem to think that oh it, if it hadn't been for white people i'm sorry that white people experienced a renaissance i'm so, i'm sorry that the white people you know learned how to build ships that could travel the world um Without white people, without all that having happened, this woman would be Pakistani, not Indian. By the way, Pakistan would have taken over the country a long time ago. But the idea that, oh, Christopher Columbus committed genocide. It was utopia. It wasn't utopia anywhere in the world. Everybody was horrible, has a horrible history. If you really want to bog down in it, I just don't care. But sooner or later, somebody would have realized that the world was flat and the people with the immune systems incapable or ill-prepared to deal with various viruses from the other side of the planet would have still died. It might have actually been worse. Who knows? Um, and this woman would still be fat. This woman would still be fat. Her diet is what she puts in her mouth. It's not what uh, we, as me as a Caucasian, decide we have to shove down her throat. It's what she puts in her mouth. It's the ultimate in, in blame shifting. Now, she'll be called a hero by the left for pointing this out, and it will be, uh, it'll be added to the lexicon of the evils of colonization. Coloniz we, brought, we colonized and brought in obscene morbidity. So which is it? Did we bring famine or did we bring morbidity? I can't uh, morbid obesity. It can't be both, can it? Can it? And oh, by the way, I mean, if you, you get it, there's, they're not flying over McDonald's to, to uh, these neighborhoods over there. They probably exist, but no one's forced to take them. All of the native foods that were traditional in the uh, Indian culture before Evil Whitey and the East India Corporation came over there and gave people jobs and lifted people out of poverty and all those horrible things that the left hates. All of those foods are still readily available. These people, this woman is capable of availing herself of them. Well, no, she's allowed to. She's free to. She's apparently not capable of doing that. And that's why she's morbidly obese. But I would just point it out still. Did you know that white privilege, white privilege is very high in calories? I didn't, I didn't know that. So there you go, whitey, another notch in your belt or something. As we get ready to wrap it up here, I got one more piece of audio I want to play for you. This is Carolyn Stone. She is the head of the ethics committee and a former president of an organization called A. S-C-A. It's the American School Counselors Association. They had their annual conference in Austin, Texas uh, last month. 
just now people apparently are noticing it and Michelle Malkin has noticed it and she has gone through and she's highlighting a lot of the flyers a lot of the leaflets and a lot of the um, videos and things like that and as she continues to mine it I'm sure there is going to be just some gold in there but I want you to hear this clip because this is remember the ethics committee she's the head of the ethics committee and um, she's telling counselors, a room full of school counselors, to ignore the parents' wishes when it comes to their children's health care, to do whatever it is that a child wants. That means if the kid, in this case, wants to be on birth control, but the parents don't want the kid on birth control, don't tell the parents. Listen, listen to her make the, now it's kind of hard to hear, but you can hear it. Listen to her make the case. I get that a lot. And then she explained that she had just taken a child to get contraceptives at a clinic because her mother wouldn't let them, let her have them. She said, what do I do? Okay, school counselor, solve this for me. Do you, one, do you tell her to go back and convince the student? to tell her parent, or do you tell her two, call the girl's mother yourself and confess, or do you tell her three? Oh, put your breath and pray. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor what you're going to tell her. Three, I hear. <laughs> See, you are all ready to be part of the ethics committee, so sign up. Yeah, ethics. And you're part of the ethics committee. You're involved. Children, children are the responsibility of parents. Their health care decisions are a part of that responsibility. Whatever you think of it, that is a parental responsibility, a parental right. And there is somebody who has ethics in their job title. Ethics. Advising people who have unfettered access to children in public schools to, uh, you know what, look the other way. Uh, give them what they want, take them in there, make sure, and then just hope that nobody notices. Hope that nobody notices. This is the modern left. This is another flyer that they put out there as part of their, their uh, no limits, as they say. No limits. Sometimes there should be limits. There should, there should definitely be limits on a lot of things. Why? Because limits are good are there for a reason. In a lot of cases, they have the uh, No Limits Annual Conference of the American School Counselors Association. It says, what do we do if a student who is not transgender complains about being uncomfortable with students who are transgender? And gender expansive, whatever the hell gender expansive means. It just means they want to sleep with everybody and they're stupid and have no self-esteem and somebody abused them as a child. The answer is we continue to educate our students as we always have. We report all forms of bullying and harassment to our administrators. So rat them out. Somebody says, hey, uh, I don't like having a guy next to me standing up and you're using the toilet in the ladies room it makes me uncomfortable i don't like to see a man showering in the girls locker room. it makes me uncomfortable they say what 
They say, tough, you're the bigot, you're the problem. We are going to have to find a way to re-educate you, or we have ways of making you obey. We'll rat you out. Continues, sexual orientation and gender, including gender identity and expression, are protected categories under Title IX. Title IX was meant to make sure that girls were treated the same as boys. Girls' sports and boys' sports were treated the same in schools. And now, in an act of genius sabotage almost, boys are saying, we want to use Title IX to protect us because we're really girls. And the left is embracing it, which means that they're really just shoving down the staircase of life girls, actual real women. Uh, they're protected under Title IX. And these students exist in our schools, just like we don't allow students to discriminate against other students because of their race, religion, disability, etc. We don't allow them to discriminate against students who are transgender and gender expansive. Other students need to coexist with them, period. Everybody must just suck it up. Because of these few weirdos. And that's it, all right? It doesn't matter. You can you can infringe upon the vast majority because of a distinct minority. Because they're preferred. They're better than you. These people are seriously deranged. These people seriously need to be um, rooted out. Honest to God. Let's see, uh, the ASA, the American Association of School Counselors, is training school counselors to, let's see, they they have uh, conferences, meetings on anti-racism. Anti-racism starts with us. Become an LGBTQ inclusive school. That's another one of their sessions there. Legal and ethical considerations, student surveys, equity in action through systemic change. Equity is not equality. Equity is the finish line. Equality is the starting line. They want to manipulate the finish line because they're evil, evil people. Teach grad students trauma-informed practices, which means tell everybody that they're victims and make sure that grad students are there as teacher's assistants to reinforce the idea that everybody is a victim. Supports transgender and gender expansive students. These are the priorities of these school counselors. Do you hear anything about normal kids in there? No. Uh, Anti-racism perspectives, I want to focus on that. Middle school matters and build and repair relationships with restorative justice. Restorative justice is a critical race theory. You are a victim or a perp based on your skin color, not because of you are not to be judged by your own actions. You are to be judged by the worst actions of anybody who looked like you at any point in the future if you're white and uh, you are all to be uh, considered to be abused and just this side of being beaten up if you're not white. It doesn't matter what you do. You could be the biggest bully in the world if your skin color is the right tone. You're the victim and not the perp. This is what's going on in many public schools across the country. These school board elections are wildly important. Throw all of these people out on their asses as quickly as humanly possible. Or get your kids out of these schools if you can't. 
Anyway, I appreciate you listening today, ladies and gentlemen. Rest in peace, Ken Starr. We shall be back tomorrow. You know that people are waiting like 30 hours in line to view the Queen's casket? Maybe we'll get into that tomorrow. Anyway, have a great day. It's a beautiful day. Get outside. Thanks for listening. <laughs>